Hello and welcome to the latest episode of When Sky Invented Football, the beautiful game viewed from the wrong end of a rolled up fanzine, this time testing takeovers. A bit later we'll discuss the proposed takeover of Newcastle United by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Supporters of the mags to a man and woman seem to pretty much hate their current owner Mike Ashley. But should investment by representatives of a regime mired in repression and human rights abuses be any more welcome? First though, the ongoing plight of Charlton Athletic and a bit of context on this. When I created Britain's first national football fanzine, Off the Ball, back in the mid-1980s, one of our key demands was the creation of a membership scheme for directors to prevent them running clubs for their own interests rather than that of the clubs they owned. I remember it vividly. We were in a hotel room at the NEC, that's me and my co-conspirator Steve Beauchampé, where the Football League Secretary Graham Kelly, later the Chief Executive of the Football Association, was cutting his toenails in preparation for a speech he was giving that evening. A membership scheme for directors, mused Kelly. Yeah, that's interesting. We have no specific plans at the moment. On paper, football has come a long way in the three decades since then. Both the Premier League and the Football League have an owners and directors test to weed out those who can't be trusted with the custodianship of much-loved community institutions like football clubs. Yet in reality, how much has changed? In episode one of this podcast in January, we spoke to Dave Thompson, a Charlton Athletic fan, lifelong, celebrating the takeover of his club by a company called East Street Investments, fronted by majority shareholder Tanu Nima. Now, the arrival of ESI meant the departure of much-loathed owner Roland de Châtelet. But now the EFL is investigating whether the new company can actually fund the club as promised, and the Charlton Athletic Supporters Trust, or CAST, has warned that the very existence of this much-loved South London Championship Club is under threat. Let's speak to Dave Thompson now. Dave, deja vu all over again by the sound of it. I'm afraid it is, Adrian, I'm sorry to say. Um, when we last spoke, I was, like every other Charlton fan, celebrating the fact that it looked like we were finally rid of Roland de Châtelet's lack of ambition and drive for the club. We had the promise of wealthy investors, inverted commas, and the sort of exoticism of Arab owners, Abu Dhabi, all a little bit mysterious. None of it had broken to the supporters ahead of time. So it all looked like it had been very professionally done in terms of the takeover. We weren't given any view of what was involved in terms of the price or the specifics, but we've, we've worked our way through that. Pretty much it looked like they had paid 50 million or thereabouts for the club. Lock, stock and barrel was the um, expression I think used originally. We were introduced to Matt Southall, a Mancunian or from those parts. Um, Matt Southall's very polished operator, very smooth talking. Um, he came in and he said all the right things to our supporters. Uh, he told us that they were going to address all of the historical problems that we've had with Roland de Châtelet in terms of engagement, building within the community, he wanted to support the club's um, community trust. He wanted to get work with the supporters groups. Everything sounded great. Matt was all over Twitter responding to fans. He appeared. He's very visible. The Châtelet had notoriously only seen one game in six years. Southall was there from the beginning, walking through the lounges, shaking hands with fans. It was uh, it was great. All, all looked wonderful. 
very quickly, uh, and this was, bear in mind, this was December was the, the, the talk-up time. The deal didn't really get ratified until the first week in January. Um, we were told that the EFL had been, you know, looking at the people involved and be considering the takeover. But we seemed to get the green light, um, I think it was the 2nd of January. And Southall spoke to the fans on the 7th via a video recording at the club. Um, and it was all sweetness and light. They told us they were determined to get the deal done for early January because we desperately needed more bodies in. The club had been struggling with up to 13 first-teamers out for three months um, and we were in trouble. So we really needed bodies in. We expected them to spend some money, which um, wouldn't have happened under De Chatelet. And then we, 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 we watched January come and go, really. We brought in Andre Green from Villa. He was a, an OK player, cameo player, but he was only on loan till the end of the season, so no big commitment. Southall then spent a couple of weeks. He met uh, the owner at uh, Peterborough, who he knows, and he was tweeting all about this to the fans. That, and he was lining up potentially Ivan, Tony, and Madison from Peterborough, who would have been big money buys. The fans were all excited. This was the sort of thing we were expecting to see. Uh, but very quickly that died down and nothing happened. And we ended up right at the death, usual Charlton thing, two, I can't even remember the names of the players. We brought in two players. I'd never heard of, they haven't played, haven't appeared. So we hadn't seen anybody. What also happened in January is it became clear that East Street Investments hadn't bought the club lock, stock and barrel. And they'd only actually bought the football club. They hadn't bought the Valley or Sparrows Lane, which is our fairly extensive training ground. And my understanding is that both the the ground and the training ground are still owned by previous owner Roland de Chatelet. They are. What we established was Roland had not sold those two assets. And the reason we were given, they said that they were in such a hurry to get the deal done so that they could maximise the January window. They hadn't been able to do due diligence on the assets. So they hadn't bought those. But he assured us that that wasn't a problem, that they'd had an agreement with Du Chatelet that they had six months in which to complete the due diligence and uh, and acquire the assets. Now, Du Chatelet is on record as having said um, months and months back that the football club he would sell for a pound, um, but the money was in the valley and Sparrows Lane. So this is where he wanted his 50 million quid. So on the face of it, it looked all of a sudden that they'd actually maybe only spent a pound to acquire the club. They hadn't put any money in January and alarm bells started to ring. That was a real struggle because no money appeared to come into the club during January. We hadn't signed any players really. We hadn't committed to any significant cost. Nothing happened in February. The team was still battling for us. Um, we were making some progress, but not much. And then in early March, we then had an absolute bombshell land, a public spat between Naima and Southall. And this was carried out, uh, Naima on Instagram and Southall on Twitter and using the club's uh, website. But basically, Naima lost, lost his temper, I think, and accused Southall of abusing the club's finances and his money, in inverted commas. We then had a whole host, days and days, the fans were wrapped with it, days and days of revelations and postings of bills and invoices. And then we got a whole slew of information showing bonus payments to not only Southall, but to also the other directors who we'd seen nothing of and didn't really know what value they were bringing to the party. But Naima was throwing mud in his direction. Southall then said that Naima hadn't put any money in. There'd been no money in the club, which made a, uh, a mockery of the whole farce during January of attempting to sign Tony and Madison. And it has got worse from there. From there. So there was a fallout and the executive chairman then, Matt Southall, was 
kicked out of the club by uh, Naima, along with another director. Two different directors were drafted in. It's not clear then, is it, what the situation is for the club going forward? Because the ground is still owned by its previous owner. The training ground is owned by the previous owner. The football club is presumably owned by Tanun Nima, but with little evidence of, of any spending power. I know that he has said, by the way, in fairness to him, he told the BBC, I, I can confirm I've received correspondence from the EFL. I've already provided an initial response and I intend to cooperate fully with them in order to ensure clarity on this matter. So, you know, he says that, that there will be answers, but, but clearly as each week goes by, you as Charlton fans are very fearful for the future. Uh, absolutely. Um, when Naima says he's responded already, he actually responded six weeks ago. And I think the issue wasn't the that he had the funds. It was the source of the funds. Now, he, he claims to have responded to that six weeks ago. They, EFL are clearly unhappy, not satisfied, hence this investigation that they've launched. So we, we are in a mess. Naima is the owner. He, he has 65% of the of East Street Investments and Southall's has 35%. But anyway, it does appear that they only paid one pound for the club. That was confirmed on a radio show this week. So um, that's the state that we're in. Does Nima have the money? We don't know. Will he be able to invest it through the, because the EFL won't recognise it? We suspect not. Um, so the fans are very fearful that Nima's pretty much lost. There was an article saying he was trying to sell the club in the Evening Standard. They reported that a couple of weeks ago that he was hawking it around for trying to get a sale for a million quid, two million quid. I mean, good money if you can get it for a club you paid a pound for. But but we're in we're in a mess because, you know, it leaves us at, at the door of the administrator. But it's, that's the state that we're in. There is one added confusion to this, if it's not complicated enough already. And that is that a number of ex-directors, seven, uh, I think there were seven of them, have loaned money to the club over the years um, when the club's needed it. It's always been on an interest-free basis. It's a friendly loan, and it was only ever repayable, they all agreed, if the club got back into the Premier League, in which case the club could afford to pay them the money back. But they're owed about £7 million between them. I think three of them have taken some action against the club um, when all this started to go wrong a few weeks back. They had a first charge on their debts to the club. And it looked to them that the deal that De Chatelet had done with East Street Investments had not taken that into consideration. Now, I suspect they weren't bothered at the start because, like everybody else, it looked like East Street Investors might be good news for the club. Clearly, that not being the case, they've moved to press this um, legally. I understand there is a case um, going through at the moment waiting to be heard, and that may well deem the sale, the original sale, illegal. If, if the EFL's investigation helps that, all well and good. But fans are sort of now hoping there's a chance that, that the Chatelet deal could be declared null and void. Where it leaves the club, we just do not know. Obviously, we can only speculate. We don't know. But if there is this legal action and it does rule the sale invalid, that leaves the club then back in the ownership of Roland de Chatelet, much loathed, as I said earlier, by the supporters. But if there is a separation between club and stadium and training ground, you're back in the same situation that you were in the mid-1980s, which allowed Charlton to leave the Valley for seven years, which in the current climate might well sound the death knell of the club in any event. Absolutely. I mean, the Chatelet can do very little with the assets as things stand because the club's there, you know, it's a, a community asset, there's protection on green space, all that kind of stuff. I don't think he gets support from the council. However, 
if the club moved away, or God forbid we folded, clearly the world would change and he'd have some opportunity to recoup part of his money, you know, at some point in terms of redevelopment. But I, I, I just, I wouldn't know what, where to look beyond this. I really don't. The threat of administration looks like it's, you know, more likely to happen much quicker than any you know, negotiation from anybody else to come in and try and save the club. The fans are very fearful for, you know, what happens to the club in the short term. So to go back right to the conversation we had at the start, Dave, I mentioned that more than three decades ago, you know, I was calling for a membership scheme for directors. Graham Kelly seemed utterly dumbfounded when I put the idea to him. We do now have owners and directors tests in both the Football League and the Premier League. But despite that, we have clubs owned, in your case, by De Chatelet, who the fans ended up hating, and now by East Street Investments, who the Football League themselves are concerned about. So uh, have we really moved on in the three decades since then? Obviously not. How on earth people like this are passing any test, I really don't know. Dave Thompson there. So that's the sorry situation at Charlton Athletic. What, though, about Newcastle United? As I said earlier, the club's owner, Mike Ashley, seems to be almost universally loathed on Tyneside. He's now proposing to sell the club to something called the Saudi PIF, the Public Investment Fund. Amnesty International have spoken out about that, and Felix Jakins from Amnesty International is with me. Uh, Felix, hello, welcome along. Hi, Adrian, thanks for having me on. And I should say before we chat, Felix, that I've invited at least three different podcasts or online fanzines representing or speaking for Newcastle fans to speak to me about this. Even though there's been a lot of heat on Twitter about it, none of the three that I approached were, were keen to speak to me. And it, it's clear, isn't it, that although some Newcastle fans will just say it's brilliant because it's fantastic level of potential investment in the club, there are some Newcastle fans who do feel uneasy about this. Why are Amnesty uneasy about it? Well, from our perspective, the takeover of Newcastle by the Saudi Arabian uh, Public Investment Fund, which you set out there, Adrian, is really a takeover by Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he's overseen a sweeping human rights crackdown um, in the country over the last uh, 18 months, actually tarnishing and making uh, you know, plunging their human rights situation down even further than it was. So um, we've we've rightly been raising uh, serious questions and concerns about um, their human rights record. And we've been calling on the Premier League uh, and everybody involved in this deal to make themselves completely familiar with what's happening in Saudi and be prepared to speak out about it. Uh, you know, they have some of just some of the things which we could talk about are um, you know, it's almost the worst place in the world to be a woman or to be an LGBT person. And the gruesome uh, murder and kind of butchering of Jamal Khashoggi, the critical journalist in the Istanbul consulate, is alleged to go all the way up to the crown prince himself. Um, and the war in Yemen continues unabated with um, with the Saudi-led coalition repeatedly targeting civilian targets, including schools, hospitals um, and mosques, including very um, unfortunately, memorably targeting a bus full of um, Yemeni children on their way to school. And this is now the public investment fund, as I said, very much controlled by Mohammed bin Salman that will be buying um, Newcastle. And we, we've been really making the case that everybody who's involved with that, and that includes fans on Tyneside who 
are understandably looking for an injection of cash and you know new momentum and ownership um, to, to make themselves very aware of. And Mohammed bin Salman, sometimes referred to just by his initials, MBS, he said that he had no involvement in the killing of the journalist in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, but he was a fierce vocal critic of MBS, wasn't he? So whoever did it, presumably did it in order to try and please MBS. He has said that. He also did say that he um, takes what he described as full responsibility um, when they were when he was um, when his government was instigating the this sort of sham trial which took place for for the five people who who have now been um, sentenced to death. Uh, but the UN and the CIA have both publicly stated that they they while they haven't directly said that he was responsible, they've said that it seems likely that he would have had had involvement and. Amnesty called the trial a whitewash, not a fair trial. And those individuals, we don't believe, are the people who were behind the killing. Now, I don't know how much uh, your listeners know about how Saudis run, but it's a it's a theocratic monarchy. Um, government control is total, and it seems very unlikely that anything happens in the in the kingdom or at the at the crown prince's request without him him knowing all about it. And in terms of the public investment fund, MBS is the chair of that. And even if he may not have a direct involvement of how the money is spent at Newcastle United, overall, this is a fund of which he has ultimate control. Yeah, that's correct. These investments will be ones which are being directed by him. There's no question about it. And this investment and seeking to invest heavily in sport is a kind of cornerstone of this reform 2030 agenda, which the Saudis are pushing to try to kind of clean up their act internationally. And we and, you know, we're, we're seeing them very invest very heavily in sports. So the clash on the dunes, the Anthony Joshua fight from the end of last year was probably the previous high watermark in that process. But definitely getting the bauble of a Premier League club would really would really be taking things to another level and be giving the giving them the opportunity to create this this different narrative about Saudi Arabia, which isn't one about their human rights violations, their bombings in Yemen and their killing of journalists, but about them being a progressive, internationally focused country that's investing heavily in sport. And you've used this phrase, I know, in the past, sport washing, haven't you, in relation not only to this potential takeover, but to Manchester City, the involvement of the Abu Dhabi royal family in Manchester City's case, the idea that you buy a big globally recognised football club in order to burnish your image and look progressive, look cool and hope that we'll overlook some of the unpleasant things. Yeah, we have. We've we've seen it being, we've seen sports washing taking place um, in a variety of different countries. And, um, you know, you could look all the way back to the Beijing Olympics um, as, as, as a way for China to do that and to detract from its human rights record. But certainly um, with Man City, uh, with PSG, um, you know, countries like Bahrain hosting Formula One races. Um, and, you know, so the situation with, with Saudi isn't unique. And we've been talking about sports watching for, for a really long time. But this is one of the biggest tests yet. And it's, it's, set, it's on the Premier League shoulders now, especially when you look at the severity of the human rights abuses that are taking place in Saudi Arabia. They are there for all to see. Um, Amnesty recently published our annual death penalty report recording over 180 known executions in Saudi Arabia. So they're one of the most prolific uses of the death penalty. 
And just to remind that um, some of the offences that people can can be put to death for there and, you know, those executions can be carried out by beheading uh, can include just being an LGBT person um, or adultery, witchcraft, dissent against the state can all land land individuals with a death penalty. So, you know, Saudi have good reason to want to create a different narrative about who they are and what they're about. Um, but as Amnesty International, we're going to continue to talk about their human rights violations. Yeah. So being gay in Saudi Arabia can itself be a justification for being put to death. I wonder how that sits with the Premier League's much vaunted LGBTQ rainbow laces campaign. Well, that's an excellent question. And, you know, if you look at Saudi's record on LGBT rights, they don't recognise that there are LGBT people in their country. Any homosexual acts uh, are criminalised. Uh, and you're right, Adrian, people can can receive the death penalty simply for being homosexual. Now, given the secretive and unfair nature of trials that take place within the kingdom, it's very difficult to get accurate information about how those are unfolding. But yeah, you're right. It can be the death penalty can be handed out simply for being gay. Mm. If you're a long suffering Newcastle United supporter, you might look at it and say, well, look, the Saudi regime, whether or not people regard it as repressive, that's for the Saudi people to be concerned about. Here we are in the UK. It doesn't affect us. They are a government with which the British government does business, sells arms to Saudi Arabia, has a very friendly relationship with, that we buy oil from. So they're players on the international stage. Why should Newcastle United be denied the opportunity to fulfil their potential as a football club? Because in the eyes of Western observers, they don't meet our standards of human rights. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, we what, what when we're talking about these issues as from from an amnesty perspective, we aren't um, we're not trying to target Newcastle United fans or make them feel guilty or anything about the fact that, that success might be coming back to Tyneside. But our job as a human rights organization is to raise these issues to make sure that they're part of the debate. And the, one of the reasons that we're so vocal on this particular issue is that Unlike many Saudi investments which happen under the radar and are about business and don't necessarily have any human rights violations associated with them, those aren't about PR, those aren't about spin, and those aren't about appearing to be progressive and to try to to whitewash away those human rights violations. Those are business dealings. Amnesty doesn't oppose doing business. We do talk about um, UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and we've been very vocal about whether or not licensing of those should continue to go ahead. And, and they are currently uh, they currently aren't going ahead um, to Saudi Arabia. But with with the takeover of Newcastle, it isn't about football and it isn't about business. It's about sports washing um, and it's about detracting from the negative publicity, which is rightly going Saudi Arabia's way because of their appalling human rights record. Felix, thank you very much indeed. I should say, by the way, that I did put many of these points to the Premier League, uh, who simply said to me, we haven't made any comment about the proposed takeover of Newcastle United. So they had nothing to say about the whole raft of issues, very important issues raised by Amnesty and by other concerned people, other concerned football fans at this time. So anyway, thank you very much indeed for listening. You've been listening to When Sky Invented Football. My name's Adrian Goldberg. If you do want to get in touch, you can drop me an email, goldbergradio at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Goldberg Radio. See you next time.